Arnold had regained his composure. He took two sips and breathed deeply. When he looked up, the woman was watching him and worrying her hands. I'm much better, he gave her a weak smile. I'm just not used to this cold. Please sit here as long as you want. Thanks. He paused, then pointed toward the exhibit. The photographer, Bernier, does he live near here? Claude? Sure, he's got a walk-up in Chelsea. I went to buy one of his pictures. Arnold stood up slowly, steadier now, and led the woman to the photograph of the angry couple. Do you think he'd see me today? Arnold asked as he produced a credit card without moving his eyes from the photo. The woman looked worried. Do you feel up to it? Arnold nodded. She seemed on the verge of trying to change his mind. Then she carried the photograph to the front to ring up the purchase. As she waited for clearance from the credit card company, she used the phone. Arnold sat down again. His initial shock had abated and had been replaced by a sense of urgency and purpose. Claude can see you any time, the woman told him as she handed Arnold his purchase and stationery from the gallery bearing the photographer's address and phone number. He memorized the address and placed the paper in his jacket pocket. Thank you, you've been very kind, he told the sales clerk before stepping into the street. A frigid wind greeted him, but Jean Arnold was too distracted to notice. The headlight beams of Dr. Sergei Kaidanov's battered sob bounced off a stand of Douglas firs, then came to rest on the unpainted wall of a one-story cinderblock building buried in the woods several miles from downtown Portland. As soon as Kaidanov unlocked the front door of the building, the rhesus monkey started making that half-cooing, half-barking sound that set his nerves on edge. The volume of noise increased when Kaidanov flipped on the lights. Most of the monkeys were housed in two rooms at the back of the building. Kaidanov walked down a narrow hall and stood in front of a thick metal door that sealed off one of the rooms. He slid back a metal sheet and studied the animals through the window it concealed. There were sixteen rhesus monkeys in each room. Each monkey was in its own steel mesh cage. The cages were stacked too high and too across. As soon as Kaidanov's face was framed in the window, the monkey two from the door in the top cage leaped toward him and stared him down. Its fur was brownish-gray, and it gripped the mesh with hands containing opposable thumbs on both arms and legs. This was the dominant monkey in the room, and it had established its dominance within three weeks, even though there was no way it could get at the others. Rhesus monkeys were very aggressive, very nervous, and always alert. It was bad etiquette to look one in the eye, but Kaidanov did it just to show the little bastard who was the boss. The monkey didn't blink. It stretched its dog-like muzzle through the mesh as far as it could, bearing a set of vicious canines. At two feet tall and forty pounds, the monkey didn't look like it could do much damage to a 190-pound, five-foot-eight male human, but it was much stronger than it looked. Kaidanov checked his watch. It was three in the morning. He couldn't imagine what was so important that he had to meet here at this hour, but the person whose call had dragged him from a deep sleep paid Kaidanov to do as he was told, no questions asked. Kaidanov needed caffeine. He was about to go to his office to brew a pot of coffee when he noticed that the padlock in the dominant monkey's cage was open. He must have forgotten to close it after the last feeding. The scientist started to open the door but stopped when he remembered that the key to the monkey rooms was in his office. His office was twelve by fifteen and stuffed with lab equipment. The coffee pot was sitting on a table alongside a centrifuge, scales, a rack of test tubes, and a Pokemon mug filled with magic markers, pens, and pencils. 
Above the table was a television screen attached to a security camera that showed the front of the building. The pot of coffee was almost brewed when Kaidanov heard a car pull up and a door slam. On the television, a figure in a hooded windbreaker ran toward the lab. Kaidanov left his office and opened the front door. The scientist peered at the hooded face and saw two cold eyes staring at him through the slits in a ski mask. Before he could speak, a gun butt struck his forehead, blinding him with pain. Kaidanov collapsed on the floor, the muzzle of a gun ground into his neck. The keys to the monkey rooms, a muffled voice commanded. Kaidanov pointed toward a hook on the wall. Seconds later, a blow to the back of his head knocked him unconscious. Kaidanov had no idea how long he had been out. The first thing he heard when he came to were the hysterical shrieks of terrified monkeys and the sound of cages crashing together. The scientist felt like a nail had been driven into his skull, but he managed to struggle into a sitting position. Around him, filing cabinets had been opened and overturned. The floor was littered with gasoline-drenched paper. But that was not the only object doused in gasoline. His clothing, face, and hands reeked of it. Then, the acrid smell of smoke assailed his nostrils, and his stomach turned when he saw the shadow of flames dancing on the wall outside his office. Fear dragged Kaidanov to his knees just as his assailant re-entered the office, holding the gun and a five-gallon can of gas. Kaidanov scurried back against the wall, much the way the more docile monkeys skittered to the back of the cages whenever he entered the monkey room. The gas can hit the desk with a metallic thud, and Kaidanov's assailant pulled a lighter from his pocket. Kaidanov tried to speak, but terror made him mute. Just as the lid of the lighter flipped open, an insane shriek issued from the doorway. An apparition, engulfed in flame, eyes wide with panic and pain, filled the entrance to the office. The dominant monkey, Kaidanov thought. It had been able to force open its cage door because Kaidanov had forgotten to secure the padlock. The human and primate locked eyes seconds before forty pounds of adrenaline-fueled, flame-tortured muscle launched itself through the air with a terrifying scream. Kaidanov saw the rhesus land on its prey and sink its fangs into his attacker's shoulder. As the pair toppled to the floor, Kaidanov staggered out the door and ran towards the woods, Moments later, two shots rang out. Ready to rock and roll? Joe Molinari asked as he ambled into Daniel Ames' tiny office. Not today, Daniel answered regretfully, pointing at the papers on his desk. Briggs just laid this on me. We're talking happy hour, compadre, Molinari said as he slid his angular body onto one of Daniel's two client chairs. The litigation associates at Reed, Briggs, Stephen, Stottlemyre, and Compton met for happy hour once a week at a popular steakhouse to bitch and moan about how hard they worked and how unappreciated they were, and to make fun of other lawyers who were not among those chosen to work at Portland, Oregon's largest and most prestigious law firm. Daniel enjoyed the camaraderie, but he knew that it would be impossible to drag himself back to the office after sharing a pitcher of margaritas with the gang. Briggs needs my memo tomorrow morning. Molinari shook his head ruefully. Hey, man, you've got to stand up for yourself. Lincoln freed the slaves. The Thirteenth Amendment doesn't apply to associate at Reed Briggs. You're hopeless, Molinari laughed as he levered himself out of the chair. But you know where we are if you come to your senses. Molinari disappeared down the corridor and Daniel sighed. He envied his friend. If the situation were reversed, Joe wouldn't have hesitated to go for a drink. 
Like most of Reed Briggs' associates, Joe had gone to an elite prep school, an Ivy League college, and a nationally ranked law school. With his connections, he could have gotten a job anywhere. Daniel thanked God every day for his job. Daniel's mother had waitressed when she was sober enough to hold a job. He'd had six fathers, to the best of his recollection. The nice ones had ignored him. The bad ones had left him with night sweats and scars. Daniel had run away several times, but he had left home for good at seventeen, living on the streets until he could not stand it, then joining the army where his intelligence had finally been recognized. After the army, Daniel had gotten a degree in biology at Portland State and his law degree the hard way, earning every cent of his tuition and knowing that there was no safety net to catch him if he failed. He took pride in earning a spot in Oregon's best law firm without Ivy League credentials or family connections. But he could not shake the feeling that his hold on success was tenuous. Every day he half expected to be told that his hiring had been a cruel, practical joke. At 6.45, Daniel finished a rereading of a draft of his memo. He stretched and rubbed his eyes. When he pulled his hands away, he saw Susan Webster smiling at him from the doorway. He couldn't decide what was more shocking, that she was smiling or that she deigned to pay him a visit. Hi, he said casually, consciously keeping his eyes off of her runway model figure. Hi yourself, she answered as she perched gracefully on the arm of one of Daniel's chairs. She glanced at the paper spread across his desk. If you're not at happy hour, you must be working on a case of monumental importance. Is that a brief for the United States Supreme Court or a letter to the President? Susan looked and dressed like a cover girl, but her degree from Harvard was in physics and she'd been in the top ten at Stanford Law. Because of their science backgrounds, Susan and Daniel had been chosen as a part of a team that was defending...